Well, thank you for your tremendously warm welcome. And I'm really delighted that John, Marion, and the eldership team uh, invited us back last time. It was about two years ago, and I'd just had a quite severe accident with a car hitting me on my motorcycle and injuring my right foot badly. So I think I was on crutches last time I came here. And uh, all's well now, and no more accidents, praise God. Uh, Andy, my son, is here with his new wife, Sian. Where are you, Andrew? Over there. I've got a big mummer of a Honda 650. He's got a little Honda 125. But he's doing his test next week, and he's already looking through the motorcycle catalogs for something bigger, I think, so they can both travel together. Well, it's thrilled to be here. After we'd bumped into Mark yesterday, uh, I came over to see this finished renovation for the first time. And, you know, I had tears in my eyes walking around just to see the standard of excellence, or as Mark put it, excellence without extravagance. Although he did spend about 1.6 million pounds on it, I think. But it's so moving to see the fulfillment of a dream we had to acquire a big barn so that the harvest could come in and that we would double and double again. And it looks like you're well on your way. And there's so many faces here. I guess I wouldn't know about two thirds of the church now, but it's been thrilling to be together with old friends. And thank you for bringing this classic Nobo uh, stand for me to preach from. Um, It's just like going back to the old days. And wobbly still. <laughs> I, um, I did hear that your beautiful Perspex one has been damaged. It reminded me in 1995, Tommy Tenney was speaking at a, a charismatic church in Houston in Texas. And God hit the stand just as he approached the, the, pla- the platform and split it right down the two in middle It flew off the platform and the Spirit of God fell on him, the congregation, the senior pastor, and it was the birth of revival. Well, I know you've not been hit by divine lightning, just by some faulty lighting lighting of here, I think, uh, that's fell on it. But nevertheless, you never know. God may well be about to do something great. And that's what we're sensing for ourselves in London at Westminster Chapel. We've come to a place now where we've crossed a river, our Jordan, from wilderness years, decades of wilderness years in that church, uh, where so much has been disordered and wrong. And God has brought the church to a place of unity, joy in the Holy Ghost, manifest presence of God, and poised now to take land for Him. And I'm sure you, you too are feeling the same stirring of faith. So let me read with you from two passages. One is in Genesis 12, and then we go over to Hebrews chapter 11. Genesis 12, and then Hebrews 11. This is about the call of Abraham. Verse 1 of chapter 12 of Genesis says, The Lord had said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. And he took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, 
all the possessions they had accumulated and all the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. Right over to Hebrews chapter 11, the great chapter of faith. In verse 1 it says, Now faith is being sure of what we hoped for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. And by faith Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith he still speaks even though he is dead. Verse 7, by faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. And by his faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents. As did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. This morning I felt laid on my heart to speak to you about faith looking forwards. I know that January is a time where we often take stock, we look back in retrospect to the past, But mostly, we're orientated towards the future. And I want to, therefore, dwell on that theme, because certainly as a church in the heart of London, we are poised to look forward to the future in a way that I don't think has been possible for that church for a long time past. And you, too, have come into this beautiful, completed facility, which was acquired by faith, for a faith purpose. And that... purpose has only really begun to be fulfilled. There's much more yet to be done, though we thank God for everything that's happened. Now, I don't know if you noticed as we read uh, Genesis chapter 12, there's always the same ingredients to any faith venture God calls us upon. We could sum it up like this. God has in mind a territory for you. In Abraham's case, it was Canaan and thence the world. A territory is a place the Lord locates us. And God has a special place for every one of us as individuals and also for us in our corporate identity together. And then a name. A name is a reputation that you have. And it's God who gives you that reputation. And it's God who can take away that reputation. But most of all, God wants to give us a people. It's one thing to have land. It's another thing to have a name. But the greatest thing of all is to be used as instruments of God's hand to influence the lives of people. And so he not only promised him offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. He put flesh and blood upon that and said, through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And ultimately that's what this is about. It's about God having a people and using us as his instruments to accumulate and gather and garner that harvest of people. A name, however, is bound up with this. Usually, God gives us a reputation before that people come. 
And as that reputation grows, more people are added to what we're doing. Now, one of the familiar sights that tourists and residents notice in London is that as you travel around, there's all kinds of uh, buildings, public buildings, private dwellings, uh, places of business and industry. But you notice regularly, if you've gone off the beaten track and walked through streets you've never walked, that all over London there are blue plaques, blue metallic plaques, circular plaques, placed on the facade of windows, usually uh, of, of those houses, usually by windows and doors. And they tell you of a famous person who once lived here. They give the role that that person had, in other words, what they were famous for, and then the dates in which they lived. And it adds a peculiar fascination, if not value to the house as well, that somebody famous lived there. And these are all over the place. You can see plaques to Charles Dickens and plaques to people uh, that you heard of, like authors near us. There's one a street with a, to Joseph Conrad, uh, the great uh, 19th century novelist. And uh, I came down a street, which is only hundreds of yards away from where I live, last year, of a mansion block of apartments, four or five stories high. And they're extremely expensive to uh, buy or indeed even to rent these apartments. And I noticed on the outside for the first time that it said this. Winston and Clementine Churchill lived here, 1930 to 1939. And I looked back and saw the apartment block and I never knew that, that Winston Churchill had lived here. And, of course, the reason he moved out in 1939 was to become Prime Minister of England, the greatest wartime leader there has ever been, perhaps one of the greatest Prime Ministers we've ever had, and one of Britain's true greats. In fact, he was voted the greatest Britain, wasn't he, in a recent competition. It is a wonderful thing for God to give us a reputation, especially if it's deserved. And I believe that as we face the new year, it's with a view to God enhancing the anointing that's on our lives for the reputation He wants to give us to influence a people. You've got a massive footprint on this city of Winchester now. Two properties that were acquired by faith, a presence everywhere on each estate and housing development, a people who love God, who are mission-minded. What wonderful things God has done. Do you know Hebrews 11, the chapter I'm going to turn you to now, is God's Hall of Fame. If you like, it's God's Westminster Abbey in the New Testament. I had the privilege with Ruth and some other Christian leaders from our immediate vicinity to be taken on a guided tour of Westminster Abbey last week. And this was arranged with the permission of the Dean of Westminster Abbey and some of his clergy and a verger, a very colourful, knowledgeable and humorous verger, took us around the Abbey. Do you know there's over four and a half thousand people honoured in Westminster Abbey? Apparently underneath its floor there are over three thousand people buried and most of them are pretty important people. They'd paid for the privilege of being buried in there. There are kings and queens buried there. Queen Elizabeth's grave, the first grave is in there with a statue monument to her and underneath her is her sister, Bloody Mary, who persecuted the Protestants and doesn't even get an effort of her figure. She's just underneath Queen Elizabeth. All the Edwards, all the Henrys, and all kinds of famous people are honoured in Poets' Corner and Science Corner. And you just think, and Charles Darwin is there. How he got there, I don't know, but he is. 
And it contains these tributes to men and women, just as Hebrews 11 does. Men and women who achieve greatness as God defines it to be. Everybody wants to achieve greatness. I doubt there's a person in this room who doesn't want to make their mark in the brief life that they have. And yet this comes out of relationship with God. Ability to hear His voice into our spirits. And then a ready willingness to do what God says, even though it involves discomfort and unease and change and unfamiliar circumstances that we move into. Abraham was called in the Bible the friend of God. And Jesus made clear when he talked to his disciples, I don't call you slaves, I don't call you servants, I call you friends because slaves don't know what their master is doing. When we are the friend of God, we have the capacity to hear from God and see things that he shows us in the Holy Spirit. God is looking for friends, not slaves. And faith qualifies you to be a friend of God. To such people, then, God begins to give them a capacity to see in the spiritual realm, to have a vision for their own lives and for the sake of other people. In fact, I believe without this faith vision, it's impossible for us to enter the future safely or purposefully. We see things by the Spirit that are not yet, but which will soon come to pass. That great definition of faith in Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. It means this, that faith enables us to bring the future into the present and enables us to make visible the invisible. It's as real as that. We've seen the future. We can almost touch what God is going to give us in the future, even though it's not a reality. We've seen it, and we know it's going to happen in our spirits. So vision is a God-given picture of a preferred future. I've seen many blessings in our lives, particularly at this current time, since we crossed the river in November of last year and took virtually the whole congregation into a step over our Jordan and into our promised land. Now we're beginning to take ground. But I'm still not content of where we are. The other side of the Jordan is a better place to be than the wilderness. But it's not where we're ultimately going to be. And we haven't achieved the things that God has in mind for us. And you must feel the same. I, I have a preference. It's not for the present. It's for the future. And I guess you have too. It's a dream with a deadline. If only God would tell us when the deadline will be completed. It's a form of sanctified dreaming. Where this kind of dreaming is different. It's God dreaming. God putting his heart on our hearts. And it begins with a kind of verbal communication from God. And a sequence that often accompanies it of pictures in our head of what we'd love to see happen. In our place, on our territory, in our lifetimes. And for God's glory, for the sake of a people, he's going to gather to us. Now... Those pictures do become reality as we persist in faith. Hence my title today, Faith Looking Forwards. It's better to be vision driven than it is to be money driven or to be status driven or to be ambition driven. It's better than being fame driven to be vision driven. God will make you famous in many senses. But if you pursue fame at the expense of vision, 
You may attain neither. But if you pursue vision, God will often give you all these other blessings as a spin-off as a result of that. So it's very important for us that we walk into our destiny and use our gifts to the full. Walker Percy, American philosopher and novelist, said this, It's possible to get all A's and still flunk at life. It is, isn't it? You can have various achievements as the world counts them important and still flunk at the life God wanted you to live. So, when God gives you, He simply does not find you a place for your gifts. But rather, He's prepared you and your gifts for a place of His choosing. And you and I will never really be ourselves until we find that place and get on with what the Lord has assigned for us to do. Are you satisfied this morning? I don't mean, are you joyful? I don't mean that are you in a measure contented with all that God is and has been to you. But are you satisfied? It was the Pentecostal evangelist, Smith Wigglesworth, who said, the only thing... I'm satisfied with is the fact that I'm dissatisfied. I'm spiritually dissatisfied, he meant. Because there's more. There's always more. So the question is, what kind of a God-given vision are each of you pursuing this morning? Abraham shows us that we're not only called to believe that, that is, have creedal statements which are accurate. Outside the vestibule, in the vestibule of Westminster Chapel, there is a doctrinal statement. It's a condition of our membership in the FIEC, the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches. And it's one thing to believe that those things are true, that the facts they state and the occurrences on which they're based are real and the significance of those facts is important. It's quite another thing to go beyond that, to believe on the person that they are pointing to, Jesus Christ. But there's more than believing that and believing on. There's believing for what Christ has in mind for us to accomplish. And that's where vision comes in. I want to show you four things that this brief paragraph from Hebrews 11 verse 8 makes clear in terms of our future this year as churches, which are joined at the hip, as it were. There's a, there's a relationship that we have. And there's a common purpose we're pursuing the common values that are now in place at Westminster Chapel as well as here at Winchester Family Church. And the first thing is this, that faith in God's vision causes you to take some risks. It causes you to take some risks. We're told in verse 8 that Abraham went, though he did not know where he was going. Perhaps you remember in 1592, famous seagoing explorer called Christopher Columbus spoke to the Queen of Spain about funding and permitting him to sail westwards across the Atlantic Ocean in search of a new world that he had heard of, the Indies, as he thought he would call it. And when he went westwards, of course, the voyage was troubled and profoundly disturbed by storms and shortages and lack of water and provisions and a growing disgruntlement in the crew that they had journeyed for months and had never even spotted a square meter of land peeping out from the ocean. And there was almost a mutiny until finally land was spotted. 
And Columbus called the first islands he landed at the West Indies. He thought he'd actually sailed all around the globe and had landed in some parts of India. And he called them the West Indies. So when Columbus set out, he did not know where he was going. When he arrived there, he did not know where he was. And when he eventually got back to Spain to report to the Queen, he didn't know where he'd been. And sometimes the Christian life is a bit like that, and the paths of churches are. We really are not clear what we're headed for. But you know there's something about being gripped by a God-given vision that will help you to take risks. The journey of faith is taken one step at a time. It involves uncertainty. It involves gambling on a future which is not guaranteed as far as we are concerned. It's taken by faith. But then the saving faith I've been speaking about, which is believing that and believing on a person, Jesus Christ, must be turned into achieving faith. Believing for something that becomes a reality. Let me tell you something of the distinction between these. It is saving faith that links us with Jesus Christ in the first place. It initiates our Christian life. But it is achieving faith that continues that Christian life as it's meant to be lived so that we become fruitful in our relationship with Jesus Christ. It is saving faith that trusts Christ's works to substitute for our own total failures because our salvation does not rest on our works, not in the slightest. The work has been done. It's a finished work. It's the work of Christ's perfect life and His awesome death on Calvary's cross for us. Saving faith links us with that. And we are rescued instantly from our lostness and damnation. But that's to be followed by achieving faith. And achieving faith actually empowers us to do the works of Christ in our own lives. Helping us to please God and walk in all the good things He's prepared for us to do. Finally, I would say this, that saving faith seals our union with Christ so that we are assured we are saved for all eternity. But achieving faith matures that union with Christ and ensures that we are effective in time, in preparation for eternity. And here is a man called out, our forefather in the faith, to leave all that was familiar and to pursue an adventure with God. Leave your father and mother, God in fact said to him, and go to the place that I will show you. This is achieving faith. God took the initiative. It's simply not Abraham's idea to do this. It would never have entered into his head had not God spoken to him. It wasn't as though we are therefore called upon to say, let's see, what can we do now? We've got this building completed. Oh, I wonder what God would have us do now. We've got a home, a place, a facility. Let's do something great to change God and his will for the better. We can have loads of good ideas about this, but what we most need are God ideas. God ideas. God hints at what He wants when we commence this journey. But now we need to know the details one step at a time to take the ground that He's brought us to. We don't always know how this is going to work out when we commence the journey. It takes far longer than we ever thought it would take. It costs more than we ever budgeted for. Isn't that true? And it may take us into surprising trials and difficulties we never even anticipated. 
I believe that God often leads us into things and enterprises that are totally doomed to failure. Unless God is in them. And any senior pastor will tell you, when you're embarking on these faith ventures, people will call you mad. They'll call you fool. I've been called fool in Winchester Family Church. We had families leave the family church as a result of our pursuit of this particular vision. And here it is, a reality. Praise God. You take risks for God. Because faith makes the future now and present. And it makes the invisible visible. How do we know we're not being deceived? Well, there's something about authentic faith which is a witness of the Holy Spirit in your heart. You just know in your knower you've heard from God. And people catch that, as I trust all of you have, that you know in your knower you're here for a purpose. And it goes way beyond this city and this region. It's to affect the nation. It will affect the nations before this is all through. So even so, obedience is never easy. We have to take risks. We have to step out. We have to go out on a limb for God because it's only there that all the fruit really is. It's hanging, waiting to be picked. So we have to do something we've never done before if we're going to see something we've never seen before. Amen? And you're well on the way to seeing incredible fruit from the things you've risked in God. But here's the second thing. Vision, or rather faith in God's vision, makes you willing to live in tents. That's a curious fact that's noted here about Abraham's life at this point. It says, By faith he made his home in the promised land. Like a stranger in a foreign country, he lived in tents. Now, I have a confession to make. I absolutely hate camping. I really do. And yet when we were younger and um, money was tighter, we had to almost invariably camp with our three sons when we went on holidays. Uh, Our favorite place was in Door down in Dorset. And then, of course, came the Bible weeks, and particularly the Stonely Bible week. Ten years of camping out on fields, not particularly designed for that, really. And facilities that were poor and inadequate. I know they hauled in all kinds of mobile portaloos and all of that kind of thing and shower facilities. But everybody knows they were broken by the second day and malfunctioning for the rest of the two weeks that the Bible week ran. And so it was, it was something I just used to bite the bullet for every year. I really hated it because it can get very cold under canvas for one thing. And it's hard to read. Cooking and washing up are miserable experiences. Unless you're doing seminars and you're just going to say, I'm sorry, I can't help with the washing up this morning, darling. I've got to get to a seminar. (laughs) But when it rains, as it did one notable year in the mid-90s, and Stonely Campsite was declared a national disaster area officially, and the thousands of people on it were evacuated off the site. If you remember, do you remember that? How many of you were there for that? Yeah, it was miserable. It was a total torrential rainpour that God arranged for some unknown reason I've yet to discover. And it only covered the campsite at Stonely with about 14,000 people on it. 
And so when we got up in the morning, our tent, or rather mid-afternoon, our tent was already two inches deep in water, which rose to four or five inches because we were at the edge of a slope with all the Winchester Family Church camped above us. And all the water and gubbins from their tents ran down to ours and we were awash, awash with dead worms, dead grubs, dead filth, mud, everything. Totally devastated. And I had to do a seminar that morning. So I left Ruth to clean it up. (laughs) No, I don't like camping. But when we think of this fact that Abraham was already around 70 years of age when God told him to leave Ur of the Chaldees and later Haran, where he camped for a while with his family. 70 years of age. And it tells us that God doesn't only give orders to old, to young people. He gives orders and directions to old people. How many of you are would you consider yourself old, older people? Beyond, say, beyond, say, 55. I'm not yet 55, so we'll say beyond, <laughs> beyond 55. How many of you are over 55? That's not many. But it does mean this. You can take courage from Abraham's call. It means God's always got something for us. How many of those who put their hands up then are still alive? <laughs> well, if you're still alive, it means God's got a purpose for you. Otherwise, you'd have taken... He'd have taken me home, he'd have taken you home, but he hasn't. So there's a purpose yet. And faith is the starting point of obedience, said Thomas Chalmers. God isn't so much interested, therefore, in our comfort, but in our destiny. It makes you willing to live in tents. And I know this. I belong to a reasonably prosperous church. The giving is good. I'm sure it's going to get better. But they've acquired a facility that was built in 1864. It seats nearly 2,000 people. It's got ancillary rooms. They own four housing, five, five housing properties, a nice suite of offices, many ancillary rooms. They didn't pay a penny for the acquisition of that building. It was built by our forefathers. They've inherited it. But I've got a feeling before this is all over, it's going to cost this church millions to realize what God wants done in central London and in Westminster. I'm pretty sure of it. It's a comfortable church in that sense. Just as you too live in a prosperous southern town, property prices are rising, most of you have uh, decent homes and probably money in the bank, at least if John hasn't screwed it all out of you by now. (laughs) <laughs> Take a bit more soon. But you know, the point is, we're not living here just for our own personal comforts. There are, th- there are prizes ahead of us which will entail not only risk, but will entail sacrifice. It was a big sacrifice to Abraham to choose to live in tents. He wouldn't have liked camping any more than you and I do. You have to put up with hardship. And why? Because Abraham was looking for a city. He was looking for a city whose architect and builder was God. And part of the price of that is hardship and deprivation. If you know you're going somewhere and you're excited about where you're going, you're prepared for hardship and deprivation. Discomfort may be on the agenda for God, of God for many of you before this is over. And it may be imminent that that discomfort is on its way. Why would we always think that God is calling us to go upmarket in the style of houses that we live in? Sometimes he calls us to do the exact opposite and go downmarket. Sell up, release funds. 
for God's purposes and kingdom. The kids have gone. You don't need all that space anymore. God may be saying, downsize. See what I'm going to do with your resources and with your lives as a result of that. Well, in effect, in effect that's what Abraham did. And so part of the price is a willingness to live in transition. Why? Because we simply are not there yet. After all these years, pursuing a vision that God gave Winchester Family Church in 1996, you're still not there yet in 2008. The facility is here, but the people aren't. Not in the numbers we expected at any rate. We thank God for all those who've come, but not all we've seen are here yet. And sometimes the figures don't look good. Performance is down on last year and it's likely to continue for some time to come. And God's still saying, live by faith. Now, I remember vividly when we lived in Winchester, when the boys were very young, we used to vacation in a family property, which is long since gone and been sold. But it was a cottage in Loch Inver in the far northwest of Scotland in the Highlands. And uh, it's a beautiful seaport and fishing port. And beautiful mountains around. And it was well worth the nearly 750 mile journey that we used to take the boys on to stay there for a fortnight or so. Often with David and Catherine, uh, my brother and sister-in-law. But you know, it was a big journey to contemplate with the boys. It would take us at least 12 hours with stoppages and meal breaks. And we put the three of them in the back of the car. And we'd say, now look, this is a long way and we want you to be good. We want you to behave yourself. We'll stop for drinks and toilet breaks and we'll have lunch by a lakeside somewhere. It'll be great, but you've got to be good and you've got to get on with each other because otherwise the journey will be a nightmare. And almost invariably, every single year, we drive out the outskirts of Winchester, we get on the 8th or 34, we travel five miles and a little voice would pipe up from the back seat, Are we there yet, Dad? Are we there yet, Dad? And that would punctuate the whole 12 hours of the journey. We get impatient. Faith journeys take longer than we thought. And unlike those little children on the back seats, we have to trust that God knows where He's taking us and that He can get us there. Many, many times you're going to have to fight frustration and disillusionment because we're forward-looking people. We're orientated to the future. And if you read the stories of all the people in Hebrews 11 who are here commended by faith, the common thread that runs through them all is that they were able to achieve what they did in the present precisely because of their orientation towards the future. And it's awful when we get our heads down, locked into the now that we're in. We've reached this goal. We've finally attained part of our vision. Let's just sit back, kick off our shoes and enjoy it. When God is actually saying, no, you're still a pilgrim people and you're not there yet, son. Faith is not believing what you know isn't true. Faith is committing everything on what you have not yet seen. So are you prepared to live in tents? To live temporarily? To not put the tent pegs in too deep? Because we may be upping the tent for another stage of the journey in the morning, let alone next year. What good is orthodox belief and sound doctrine if we're not prepared to put our feet on the territory God wants us to take? 
So that's the second thing. Faith in a God-given vision makes you willing to live in tents. Here's the third. Faith in God's vision may cost you even friendships and relationships. I'm very moved by this fact that Abraham actually lost family and friends on this journey to the promised land. Actually, when Genesis 12 begins, it begins not in a present tense narrative of what was going on there and then. The Hebrew makes clear in Genesis 12 verse 1, For the Lord had said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. And it links in with the end of chapter 11, where actually Abraham has been for some considerable time midway between his first city and Canaan. He's camped at um, Haran, a desert city, midway between the two. And they've settled there. When they came to Haran, they settled there, it says in verse 31. And Terah lived 205 years and died in Haran. So there were deaths in the family, but there was also, also the necessity to leave people behind. To leave people behind. And that's why God is reminding him, This is what I said to you, Abraham. I'm going to make your name great. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great and you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I'll curse, and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham left as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him, and he set out from Haran. He left uncles and aunts and cousins. He left a significant number of friends behind in Haran, and he would never see their faces again. Leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go. People of faith, therefore, don't say, no, no, Lord, I I, I like it here. We've we've got used to it. It's nearly there. We've got used to being in proximity to, to each other. It's not even so bad living in tents if all your family is around you. This is a great place. You can't ask me to leave everything right now when it's all seemingly coming together for us right now. What about my house? What about my new car? What about the children's schooling? We've just got them in the King's School. I saw the brochure yesterday and was moved to tears. At its growth and, and stability and wonderful vision and the way things are unfolding for many, many families here. But what if God said, go? And He will. We say, it's not fair. It's not even reasonable, Lord. And so what God calls us to do is to leave our comfort zone. Your comfort zone may include your present job. And God may have you go out on a limb in a new career or a new situation way beyond what you expected. He may ask you to take a lesser salary. Sometimes it means you move home for Him. Other times you change ministries and something new is launched that's never been done by the church before. And you've been handpicked and earmarked to play a vital part in that ministry and nobody really knows for sure how to do it yet or whether it will be successful here is Abraham leaving his country and leaving his companions I've noticed something about pastors that happens over time when you've been in a situation for a long period John was in 
Hastings for about 24 years, I think. 25. I was here for 21 years. And David Pawson once said to me, probably about a year before a call came to leave, he said, you know, there's a danger about being in the same situation. Yeah, there are benefits. You can build things. Uh, You've got longevity and trust. People will hear what you have to say and usually follow it. But he said you can get into feathered nest syndrome. Feathered nest syndrome. And of course the analogy is from young chicks or indeed eaglets in the nest. The structure is in place. All the twigs and branches have been gathered by mother and built firmly. And then a wonderful soft layer of straw and And dried grass has been laid and probably feathers softening any discomfort that could come from the hard branches of the tree that make up the nest. And the chicks are hatched. The eaglets start to grow. The heights are spectacular. The view is absolutely wonderful. We're in this together. Mum keeps returning with dead mice to pull down our throats. And it's just fantastic. And then mother starts doing a very extraordinary thing. She starts tearing the nest apart and tearing out all the cushioning and and lining of the nest and starts nudging the eaglets to the edge of the nest and pushing them and hinting that they're going over the edge and it's hundreds of feet drop because the worst thing that can happen to an eagle is to settle with feathered nest syndrome. And God will tear up your personal nest as he tore up Abraham's nest. Vision always dares the soul to go further than we can presently see. And it's willing to pay any price. Even if it's tearful farewells from friends. Do you remember when we announced to the church that we were leaving um, Winchester Family Church to go to Westminster Chapel? A A process that had been going on for a year. And then it all made sense to you. It now made sense why Ruth had sat in meeting after meeting with tears pouring down her eyes. Ruth cried for a year when that invitation came for us to consider going to Westminster Chapel. And it took a year to process. Ruth cried for a year. In fact, one of our wonderful leaving presents was a big box filled with about 50 boxes of Kleenex tissues as a personal gift for Ruth. And we cried. We cried every time we walked the streets of Winchester. Every time we were in a meeting here, we had to fight back the tears, knowing what was likely to happen. Not knowing whether it would or not, but the very possibility made us cry. And we cried many tears together in our home at the prospect of leaving. Because we loved this church. And we felt loved by this church. But God had said, this is not a nest you're going to stay in for the rest of your life. You're going to go to the greatest adventure so far, of which all of this has been training. Now, this is the real thing that you're going to face in London. And it has been tough. It's been very hard. It's been very lonely. We had to leave New Frontiers to do this. We had to leave you. But you know, God calls us to do things that we've not done before. And Noah must have looked and felt like a fool building a boat. In a plain, hundreds of miles from the sea, where it barely ever rained, let alone where there was space and water to sail that boat. 
David probably shouldn't have taken five stones and a sling and stepped out on that battlefield to face the biggest man in world history, nine foot seven inches tall. David shouldn't have done that. And what about Elijah? When standing before a soaked altar, he called down fire from heaven and such fire had never fallen in history. What about that time that Moses was ordered to hold a rod over an impassable sea in a cul-de-sac with Egyptian terror forces pursuing the children of Israel to take them back into slavery. What must it have felt like to raise that rod over that sea and look a fool? Until the waters parted, of course, which only Moses believed would happen. David gave way to another hero, Samson. Samson, nobody had ever taken an ass's jawbone to take on a Philistine troop of soldiers. But Samson killed 30 of them with the most extraordinary weapon of all. And what about that poor prostitute, Rahab, in Jericho, who took in the wrong men that day? Two Hebrew spies who were reconnoitering the ground for Israel to conquer that place within days. It was at the risk of her own life and limb that she hid those spies. And sent them out another way. And lied about them ever having been here or being presently here. Vision is always daring the soul to do things we've never done before. For the sake of events that have never happened in history before. And true faith therefore is content to travel under what the military calls sealed orders. And we can only open those orders when we get to the next rendezvous point on the mission. And God says, okay, you can open the envelope now and see what the next stage contains. But we still have unopened envelopes about what lies beyond that. True faith is content that God will speak to us at the appropriate point and make everything clear. So Abraham stood to lose everything here. Houses, land, property, wealth, inheritance, pension plans and investments. Not that they mean a great deal today, do they? We may see them wiped out in the next months or years ahead, such as the instability of our economies around the world at this time. So Abraham let God choose his inheritance for him. Now that's enough to make many of us have our blood run cold. Go, Abraham, to a place I have prepared for you. If you ever get anxious about money or relationships or the future... If you like to have the hedge comforts of guilt edge investments and guaranteed returns, well, you're not likely to be men and women of faith if that's the way you think about life. Because God is always taking us outside our comfort zone. And worse still, making us leave behind people we treasure. But I found this. Our great compensation when God asks us to give away friends is that he'll give us more friends. Other friends. And sometimes the best friends we've ever had in our lives. Like Abraham, we'll keep company with the truly great who've made the journey with us. Look at verse 9. It says this. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger, lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to that city whose foundations and architect were God, were made in God. 
And so our great compensation is that God is no man's debtor. And he will never take away with one hand without pouring abundance into our laps with the other. So John Blanchard comments on this. When Abraham went out, he wasn't sure of his destiny, but he was sure of his company. He had friends, new companions, new comrades in the next chapter of his life. And God will have the same for you. Now, last night, I had an extraordinary dream. We were sleeping over with uh, Neil and Sarah, not in the same room, incidentally, just sleeping over in another room. And um, what I did was I woke up with a very vivid and extraordinary dream, and I felt it was for myself and for you. What was happening was I was cruising around on my motorcycle, which is fun, in a completely unfamiliar city. And as I was touring the city, I came upon a really lush business park, which you often find on the outsides of cities today, with lots of vegetation and trees planted, landscaped beautifully, and fabulous new buildings had been uh, opened for various companies. And one in particular drew my eye, so I went down the drive and up a ramp through some double doors into the building, which was completely empty, and it was plush. The floor was smooth and polished and my motorcycle was making tire tracks on this floor of dirt. And I was just sort of revving up and going the length of rooms and spinning to a halt with the skid marks on my back wheel and looking around this building. And as I was in the room, all kinds of pictures were coming to my eyes of of this company. I didn't see a name. I didn't see what they produced. I saw no staff. There was no machinery. There were no desks in the offices. And I moved from room to room with a clarity of vision of what this building had been erected for and uh, what exactly was shaping the vision of this building. In fact, I heard very clearly its mission, what it's for, what they're there for, its, its uh, vision, the kind of things they're hoping to achieve in the years ahead, and its values, the kind of feel that this company would have, and their staff relations and morale, their values. Well, that's something I've been thinking through extensively for Westminster Chapel. And I know that you have very articulate mission, vision, and values that are your heartbeat. And then the president of the company came up behind me with his staff team, And he started asking me questions about what I'd seen. And I began to tell him what I'd seen. Actually, it reminded me of Ben and Jerry's. My wife was talking about this with me this morning when I recounted the dream. Ben and Jerry, American friends or brothers, didn't like the ice cream produced by any other company in America. And they they started in a small way to concoct recipes for ice cream that nobody had ever done quite this way before. How many of you have sampled Ben and Jerry's ice cream? Well, you know what I'm talking about. Rocky Road. Heavenly vanilla and chocolate. The one with all the lumps of fudge in it. I can't remember what that one's called. And uh, they, they do one called fish food. And they're just fabulous ice creams. You you can't just stop at half a litre. Have you noticed that? (laughs) Well, in fact, this company was producing ice creams in my dream. And it was all hidden away. It wasn't even installed, the production, yet. It was just a building that was completed. 
And I was thinking about what we've done on our building in, in Westminster and what you've done on this building here. And you know it would be easy for us both to do? To forget why we've done it. To forget what our mission, vision and values were all about. Our vision wasn't for a building or a better facility. Our vision was for people at the end of the day. And Ben and Jerry's wanted to produce ice cream that was different from anything you could taste anywhere in the American market. And that you'd want to come back for more and you would keep coming back for more. And you'd get fat coming back for more on their ice cream. Isn't that the kind of churches we've wanted to build? Churches where there's nothing quite like them anywhere else. Churches which are so unique in the presence of God, the voice of truth that sounded there, the power that's transforming people's lives, the sense of purpose and direction it gives to people in their life, the sense of healing to their mental, emotional, physical bodies, as well as all of their relationships, that they, it's just a, what we call a wow factor church that we're trying to build. Well, let's not lose sight of that vision. And that brings me to the last Faith for a God-given vision means it will make you dissatisfied with anything that man can build. It will make you dissatisfied with anything man can build. Look at the words in verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Archaeologists tell us that air as it's called, Heir of the Chaldees. And that's another name for what we call modern-day Iraq. I remember a news story halfway through this present Iraqi war that there were American and British tanks rolling over the priceless ruins of Heir of the Chaldees and damaging historical evidence and artifacts forever. That's where this city was in modern-day Iraq. And as a city... The ancient historians tell us it was the first major city in the ancient world. It was beautifully laid out in straight grid patterns. It had markets. It had flush apartments. It had palaces. It had whirring water supplies. And some say even central heating was available in cold winter nights for the rich and those who could afford it. It was beautifully stocked with goods from the east and west of the empire. It was a place you wanted to live and it was a place you never wanted to leave. But God called Abraham to leave that city, the greatest city of the time. Why? Because he gave him a vision for another city whose architect and builder is God. So faith always anticipates. And I'm asking myself today and I'm asking you, what are you anticipating Our hearts are too big to be filled with our own petty plans and small projects. Everything man alone devises and builds is really too small for the infinite capacity of our human hearts. We've got to have God and what God can do to fill our hearts. I don't like the way man builds church. I don't like some of the man-centered businesses that have arisen up, particularly in our capital in recent years, that are exploitative and inhuman in the way they treat their employees. I don't like man's designs for our British economy, let alone the world economy. I don't like some of the entertainment man devises. I don't like what's going on in the inner cities of large areas of London like Brixton and the East End of London. I don't care for man's methods of advancing his cause. 
When you pursue what man is after, you always end up either bored, dissatisfied, cramped, diminished or dehumanized. Sometimes even in mortal danger because you're being controlled. The world since September the 11th illustrates this vividly. What kind of world would it be if the proponents of those murderous acts actually won and actually realized their territorial ambitions? And so Abraham left Ur. We could call it the city of man. Because what he was really pursuing was the city of God. And nothing that is temporal or merely traditional, let alone sectarian, is fitted for the city of God. God wants to bring a people, a holy people, a united people, a dazzlingly beautiful and different people into expression in every city and town all over Britain and all over the world. And it means that you and I were designed for more than we've presently seen. And we cannot settle for less than we've seen and not uh, pursue it with all our hearts. I want to say to students here today, it's important that you're thinking long term about your lives and you're preparing and training for such a time when God is going to use you majorly. You may not have even seen the contours of what that might mean. But there's a world-famous American figure everyone has heard of. His name was Abraham Lincoln. He was a nobody. He came from a backwards area. He grew up in a wooden shack. But Abraham Lincoln became one of the most famous, if not the most famous, president of the United States. He liberated the slaves. And he said once, of his time when he was young and unknown, he said, I will prepare myself. I will prepare myself and someday my chance will come. I believe that we ought to have that mentality if we're studying, if we're training, if we're in an apprenticeship, if we're simply involved in some theological course, if we're desiring to grow in an area of ministry, I will prepare myself because someday my chance will come. God has a place for a man or woman whose heart is set on what he has earmarked for them. And it means, therefore, I want church life like God says it can be and should be. Awesome. More than a little scary to be with those people. Mysterious. Something terrible about them. Because God's there. And they're experiencing miracles of transformation on a regular, even daily basis. And I want community life which is almost impossible to obtain in London. Almost impossible without God. Because it's one of the loneliest cities on the planet. People don't even talk to each other on buses and trains because you're thought insane if you open your mouth to talk to someone, even to ask them, how are you today? People will jump back. What do you mean, how am I? You can see the suspicion and fear come over their faces. How do you build church and community in such an environment? It's almost impossible if God isn't in it. But I want community like God says it can be. I want streets full of children playing and old people safe once again to sit out on their doorsteps at night and walk the streets at night if they have to. Centered on God and His truth. Read about it in Zechariah chapter 8. The prophets saw this would happen on the world in the days to come. A city that's a refuge for the poor and the disadvantaged. Place of health and aesthetic beauty. Now, 
when the cleanness and the fun comes back into life, you know God is doing it. I believe Winchester is a transformed city from the one Ruth and I came to 27 years ago, 28 years ago. And it's continually being transformed primarily because the people of God are in this city. And you're growing unity, you're growing mission together, you're growing heart to see lives one, one at a time is changing the city. Paul said, I pray that your inner vision may be flooded with light to enable you to see what hope the fact that he has called you gives you. Maybe our dreams so far have been small. This is the day for dreaming bigger dreams from God because we're in a much more desperate and needy world. And it means then, it could be that our vision for Winchester and London is actually running after what God actually wants, but not yet caught completely hold of it. I'm certain that's the case in London. So whether it's for your regular church or your home or your business, God wants you to see things as He can make them happen. And for this we need a massive transfusion of Abraham's faith. A faith that's looking forward. And who knows, when that happens, it may be the only promotion that really matters will be the one God gives us. That the only fame that's worth having is God's hall of fame. And if so, if that's what you and I want, we're going to be in the very best company. Lady Julian of Norwich, a wonderful Christian writer of about the 13th century, said this, All shall be well. All shall be well. And all manner of things shall be well. I believe the same thing. The best days for the church and for world history lie ahead of us, not behind us. So in a BBC radio broadcast of one of the darkest hours of this nation's history, I think it was King George V, spoke over the airwaves to the whole nation at the dark time of the blitz commencing and the Nazi ambitions to take over our nation. And this is what he said. It was a January 1st message, and he said, I said to the one who stood at the gate of the year, Give me light, that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, Go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God, and that shall be to you better than light and safer than than a known way. When we put our hand into God's hand, He may say, give up your comforts, leave your friends, but it's all in order to pursue the city whose architect and builder is God. Faith looking forwards. Let's stand.